0: Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host, Hey, everyone, Dave here with the How We Solve podcast. I'm here with Dr. Vanessa Boucher, a professor of political science and co founder of Severa, a premium social impact brand that sells aromatherapy products to values driven customers while forging a pathway to economic independence for survivors of human trafficking. Vanessa, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. How are you, David?
0: I'm doing very well. I have to say you have one of the one of the longer introductions <laughs> guess, that I've had, which is going me excited about the call. Any introduction of that length surely is going to be very interesting. So let's talk about Severa. So premium aromatherapy products to values driven customers, survivors of human trafficking. There's a lot going on there. Tell us a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Well, I originally founded Severa because I met a woman that was stuck in the brothels in Delhi, India. And I was speaking with her, asking her about her life. And she said, why should I share my story with you? People like you come here and exploit us for our story, which makes you no different than the people that come and exploit us for our bodies. And so that really resonated with me. And I asked her, what is it that she needs? And she said, I need dignified employment to get out of this dirty business. I vowed that day to help her find that employment. And I searched for six months for a social enterprise in Delhi that was working with women wanting to come out of the brothels. And I found nothing. So decided to co-found Severa with a friend of mine, Ushri, and my husband, Noel. And the reason that we decided on essential oils and aromatherapy products is we really wanted a market that was indigenous to India and that honored Indian culture and heritage. We wanted it to be a wellness company because everything about what we do is about wellness. So we wanted it to be not only about physical wellness, but emotional and psychological spiritual healing and wellness. So that was the second criteria. Third was we wanted it to be in a market space that was anticipated to grow over the course of the next 10 years and finally a market that currently lacked what we would consider to be kind of a social impact brand. And so taking all of those things into consideration, we landed on essential oils. We're currently employing seven survivors of sex trafficking in Delhi, India, and two survivors in the United States.
0: Wow, very, very interesting. I love the, her comment about, you know, stealing the story is the same as stealing the body. I mean, I've never heard it put like that, but that's really interesting. Um, I'm sensing there's a backstory with you and a relationship to India. I mean, first of all, you're in New Delhi, uh, mm-hmm. which is not a, a common destination to go. You're, you're speaking with locals, and then you, you know, have this drive to start a company in India. So is there is there more to unpack there that I'm missing? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, there's much more to unpack there. You introduced me as Dr. Vanessa Boucher, and it is true, I have a PhD in political science. And I am a political science professor at TCU. But I've been a scholar and teacher activist in the anti-trafficking space for over a decade. And on that particular trip to India, I was leading a study abroad of a group of TCU students to study, the title of the course is American Foreign Policy and Transnational Human Trafficking. So that's what we were there doing over the course of me traveling to India a lot, taking students there, I have become very close with one particular NGO on the ground. And that particular NGO runs the medical clinic in the red light district in Delhi. And so that's why we were there in that particular space, sitting on the ground, talking to the women there.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That adds a little bit more context. And so human trafficking in India, is it, I guess, I hate to say similar to human trafficking elsewhere, but is this like a consistent where it's done. It's done in a similar manner. Is there something about India specifically that they have an above average amount of human trafficking or maybe it's of a different kind?
1: Yeah, I would say that it, it's both similar and different in, in various ways. So when we talk about vulnerabilities of individuals being trafficked, we oftentimes talk about it in terms of push and pull factors so those factors that push individuals into becoming vulnerable to these situations and then, and then things that pull them in or draw them in or entice them into being trafficked or at least being vulnerable to being trafficked. And many of the push and pull factors that we see in India are also present in the United States, but then there's a variety that are also different. So, you know, in India, of course, Most of the trafficking that takes place is from very rural areas of the country where girls are being trafficked to urban areas of the country. And they're oftentimes told a false narrative around, we will take your daughter to the city. They will serve as a domestic maid for a wealthy family. They'll be given the opportunity to get an education, et cetera, et cetera. And then they're sold into the brothels. That's the most common story. There's another narrative that's very, very common is domestic violence that ends up turning into trafficking. Child marriage is a very serious issue in India. And of course, we do have child marriage in the United States, but it's not nearly as culturally acceptable in the United States. It's kind of underground in certain cults. Whereas in India, it's still very culturally acceptable, especially in more rural uneducated parts of the country. And then the other thing, of course, that makes it different is the caste system in India is very much still alive. There's lots of movements to sort of rid the country of the caste system, but this is a system that's been in place for millennia, and it takes a long time for old habits to... Old habits die hard. And so the caste system is still very much a relevant issue there, and therefore the mentality or the thinking is that some people deserve their lot in life because they've been reincarnated into this particular space or place because they've done something to deserve it in a past life. And that's why they're in that particular caste. And so there's nothing they can do to get out of it. They don't deserve equality. They deserve what they had coming to them. So it's a certain cultural mentality that is that we don't have as much in the United States. Of course, we were founded as a country on the principles of equality and dignity and human rights. We all know that we have problems with those things in the United States of America, but some of the things that make trafficking very prevalent in India are less culturally relevant in the U.S. And then finally, I would say, Uh, Gender-based violence across the board is one of the biggest drivers of sex trafficking. And the devaluing of a female's body in the power dynamics there are prevalent across the board. We try to make claims that we as a society in the U.S. are a little bit more cultured and progressive in gender issues and we are but there's still certainly a long ways to go and in India women are still very very much second-class citizens.
0: Mm -hmm. I imagine a lot of these women are sort of lost in the system to some degree when they are forced into the human trafficking trade. How is it you're able to sort of find them and employ them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And a question that we get a, a lot, actually, how do you find your employees? And the way that we do it is we work through NGOs. So the NGO that we work with in India is called Shakti Vihini, And they run the medical clinic in the red light district. And through that program, for over two decades, about 25 years now, they have been doing outreach in the brothels in Delhi, primarily talking to the women and training the women on STDs and how to prevent STDs as well as you know HIV prevention. In order to do that, they identify and then train peer educators. And the peer educators then go into their specific brothels and they talk to the women about using condoms, how to prevent STDs, how to just stay healthy, they're just keeping their reproductive systems healthy and taking care of their health. And so What we have done is partnered with Shakti Bihini so that we hire women that are part of their peer educator. And Shakti Bihini does the initial round of interviewing and kind of vetting, if you will, for us. And then they recommend the women that we then end up interviewing and employing. And it's actually a similar process in the United States. We have a couple different NGOs that we work with in the U.S. to identify survivors that need jobs and are facing barriers to employment for a variety of reasons. It could be a barriers to employment because of a criminal history. It could be because of age. It could be because of health. It could be a variety of reasons um, that they face significant barriers to economic integration. And so we work with those NGOs in the U.S. as well to identify survivors that we then interview and employ.
0: Interesting. Does that not lead to any conflict with the brothels when the NGO is kind of coming in and essentially poaching their employees from them?
1: So another great question. So far, it's been okay. And the reason it's been okay is because we have hired mostly older women who are not making the brothels as much money any longer in terms of the sex work that they're doing. So most of our employees are in their uh, late 30s to mid 50s and even 60s. And so they are not making as much money anymore. Now, as we grow and as we employ younger individuals, that's going to become a real issue and it it could actually become dangerous. So we do have one employee. She's actually one of our youngest ones and she started receiving calls from her previous brothel owner because our goal is for them to move out of the brothels Within three months of employment with Severa. And so we work with them on saving enough money within that period of time to then be able to move out. Well, once this particular employee moved out, she started getting calls from the brothel owner who was talking to her under the guise of care and making sure that she was okay. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Where are you now? But thankfully, this woman was savvy enough to know that this was a ploy and they were trying to find her so that they could basically take her back. So I do believe that as we start employing younger women, it's going to be a a bigger and bigger problem that we have to contend with.
0: Yeah, that is a very uh, unique uh, situation for sure. You mentioned you have two in, in the U.S. in addition to seven in India. What made you decide to kind of branch out into the U.S. and and how also does that function from a operations standpoint? I, I would have assumed that it's uh, it's not exactly like a remote business that there's sort of you know they're assembling the, the products and stuff like that. So how does that all work?
1: So. Our employees in India are, they production employees. So they're primarily working with their hands, creating things with their hands. And we can pay them double the living wage in India. And we can pay them well doing things that are constructing things with their hands. In the United States, as we all know, we are, you know, no longer an industrialized society. We're a knowledge economy now. And it's really difficult for anyone in the United States to, to make a good living um unless you are working for a huge corporate like you know Ford or something on an assembly line and you're unionized it's difficult to make that same level of living wage in the United States and 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 work with your hands so we just the profit margins aren't there so what we have done with um the survivors that we employ in the US is we integrate them into different aspects of the business that are knowledge economy aspects of our business so when we started getting online orders through our e-commerce site, we needed to hire someone to do all of those fulfillments. And so we hired a survivor to do those fulfillments for us. And we trained her in all of the relevant computer programs that she needs to know in order to do that job really well. And we've actually then started to, her job began to expand and morph into additional responsibilities. So she's been responding to and managing many of our wholesale relationships with our wholesalers, doing sales at markets and fairs. And so there's lots of different ways that we've integrated them into into knowledge economy business functions, where they're absolutely integral part of us conducting business well. The other survivor that we employed, she's doing all sales and she's masterful at it. She's actually just an incredible salesperson. And so that's how we have, that's how we've kind of been hiring survivors here and integrating them into different business functions that are relevant to running any sort of e-commerce business in the United States.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome that you can obviously take uh, these women and invest and teach them new skills that also fit, you know, the business, the business needs. I definitely don't want this question to come across in any way other than curiosity, but... Is it at all, do you find it at all limiting to work with this niche, so to speak, in terms of a availability of labor and sort of the jobs that you might need to fulfill? Or maybe it's just sort of, you know, it's not exactly a goal that 100% of all employees need to be from, you know, the human trafficking industry. Mm-hmm.
1: We, so right now in the US, we only have three paid employees and two out of those three are survivors. And in in India, we have nine paid employees and seven out of those nine are survivors. We would like for those ratios to remain the same, even as we grow, while simultaneously recognizing that we have to still hire individuals that already have experience and expertise in certain business functions. So we will... As we continue growing, our, our first priority is asking the question, is there, is there a way to hire a survivor for that job? And then the next question is, if there's, if there's not, then we want to make sure that we're getting the best person for that job, but then trying to hire survivors to support that function. You know, every corporation spends a lot of money on training and professional development of their employees. And so while we may be hiring survivors that don't necessarily have the skills and expertise that we need for them to do their job, just like any company, we're going to invest the time and the resources to train them to be able to do that. So yes, I would say in some ways it is limiting. On the other hand, it is remarkable what all of us as human beings are able to do when someone invests in us when someone's willing to like spend time to sit down and show us what to do and a lot of things you know with fulfillment working with computers it's easy I mean it's plug and play kind of programs you know but it's a matter of just accessibility and having someone sit down and teach you how to do it it's not hard What is hard in India, I will say, is that none of our employees have ever had any formal education there. So they're all illiterate. We spend an hour and a half every single day in the workday teaching them how to read and write. So they are becoming literate now. But that's one of the reasons that it's difficult even to integrate them into other aspects of the business beyond production. Whereas in the United States, we absolutely can and we do. But yes, it's... It's it's definitely harder than hiring someone that like already has experience doing it.
0: Yeah, I guess let's switch uh, gears a little bit. Talk about marketing. Uh, learn more about how you've you've able to kind of gotten the company out. I don't know if has press been you know more amenable to talking about Severa just because of the mission and how you know how, the, just how amazing that is.
1: I would actually say that marketing and PR is one of our areas that we need to grow in. We have an interesting business model, which is paying over the living wage to survivors of sex trafficking that don't have a ton of job experience in what we're doing. So which means that we spend a lot of time in training, but still paying well, right? So because of that, we cannot have the same marketing budget that other companies may have. We cannot spend the same amount on marketing because that money is going towards paying employees. And even during COVID, our employees in India, we have nine of them, they were on lockdown for two full months and couldn't produce anything. They weren't going to the office for, it was a little over two months and they did not miss a paycheck. We didn't skip a beat. We kept paying them their living wage. And that's what we're committed to doing. That means that we have to cut in other areas. And that's been a real catch-22 for us because we have to be profitable. We're still a for-profit business. Uh, Now, Grant, we are a benefit corporation. So, you know, we're registered as a benefit corporation, which means that we are able to balance the competing interests of people, purpose, and profit and planet so that's a beautiful thing because we don't necessarily and our shareholders know that we are not legally obligated to make the same return as a non-public benefit corporation would because of our social mission. But we still have to make sales. And how do you make sales? By people knowing about your company. And how do people know about your company? Through marketing. And how are we supposed to do that without a marketing budget? So We've been looking for as low cost ways as possible to market, trying to use social media as much as possible. But that is an area that I would say we're weak in. And even PR has been not as easy as we thought it was going to be. You know, we don't have the budget right now to work with a major PR firm. And that is how a lot of people get these spots in glamour or, you know, Vogue or fast company, you know, you name the outlet, R- right now we're just unable to work with a PR firm to help with that. So I would say that is one of our weaker areas, but it's not for lack of trying <laughs> and effort on our part. It's just trying to figure out how to balance the competing needs of our business right now. And all businesses face that. It's not unique to us, but it is a little bit unique only in that we have way more employees than most people because that's why we exist.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly a unique challenge, you know, just tied to to the mission and, and obviously the, you know, the geography in, you know, with, in which you're working in. Just to a very minor uh, note, but it's something I've never really come across as you said, it's a, a benefit corporation, which I guess sort of doesn't legally obligate you to certain returns that maybe another company would. Could you just just educate me a little bit more on that because I've I've never really come across I obviously I know nonprofit and for-profit, but this is yes classification.
1: Yeah. So I would say that a benefit corporation is somewhere in between a nonprofit and a for-profit. It's kind of this in-between space. So the a public benefit corporation is a new business designation that approximately, I believe, about 40 states have right now. And in the state of Texas, it just became a new business designation in 2017. So it's still fairly new in Texas. But essentially, the legal mandate of a public benefit corporation is that you have a double bottom line, that your bottom line is not just profit, but also the people and planet and purpose. So that's what it's all about. It it requires you to write and, and publish an impact report every year. And so you have to communicate to your constituency what your impact has been as far as those things. So the people, planet, purpose, and then also profit. So in addition to the registration as a business being a public benefit corporation, there's also B Corp certification. And so B Corp is a nonprofit certifying body that essentially makes you go through this very, very extensive application. It takes a long time to go through and it asks you hundreds of questions about your business practices in specific areas. So how are you impacting the community? Who are your suppliers? Who are your employees? You know, what what do you do for your environmental policies and standards and practices? So it's very extensive application, and you go through it and at the end of it, you have a score as a company. And you have to have a minimum score in order to be eligible to become B Corp certified. And we are pending B Corp certified right now. The reason is that you have to have at least a year of operations under your belt before they'll fully certify you. So September of 2020 will be a year. And so at that point, hopefully we'll be full certified. But right now we're pending. So that just means that our board of directors has to know that we are to be held accountable as a company for making money, but also for treating people in the planet with respect and dignity.
0: Mm -hmm. And is that the main benefit or are there tax breaks or additional grants that a company becomes eligible for when they are classified as a benefits corporation?
1: I don't believe so. That's a question that I would have to ask my husband about because he's been kind of taking responsibility for all the legal side of things. I don't think that there's tax breaks as a company for being a public benefit corporation, but I could be wrong
0: Sure. Um, also, if it's, you know, so new, they just may have created them yet, uh, but but maybe in the future, true. hopefully. Awesome. Well, so what's next for Severa? Is it looking to expand in any particular area or a new product line? What's kind of on the roadmap?
1: We are looking to expand into other product lines that we're super, super excited about. So, Our employees in India have been working really hard since they've been able to get back to work after the lockdown on a line of diffusing jewelry. So there's certain types of uh, materials that diffuse jewelry. And so it absorbs the oil and then it's kind of essential oil by your face or your neck that you can smell throughout the day. So they're working on a new line of diffusing jewelry made out of clay. And we hope to launch that in August or September, sometime in the fall. It was originally supposed to be launched in June and then COVID hit. So we'll see if there's another second wave of COVID. But that is coming down the horizon. So we're very excited about that. Another exciting thing that we're doing is we are starting to mix some of our own essential oil products in our office. So we have a new line of bug spray that has been really popular. We've only been selling it for two weeks and we keep selling out of it. We can't keep it in stock. It's an outstanding product. And then we also uh, mixed beard oil. So in, in case you're interested, it's actually a really wonderful scent and it keeps your face nice and moisturized and helps just grow a really soft beard. So we have that we have a new sort of hand purifying spray that we're working on right now. We have a pillow mist and a shower spray that we're also working on. And those are all being mixed by the survivors that we're employing here in the United States. So a lot of different lines and products, new new product lines coming out that we're super excited about. And then the final thing is we have an aromatherapist that we are contracting with on a variety of different products, and she is a survivor herself. So she's developing new blends for us, and, and so we're going to not only have the survivors mixing and pouring the blends, but we're also going to be having them be created by, by an aromatherapist who's now thriving as a survivor. So. Wow.
0: Uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of products being created. I can't even imagine how, how one comes up with all of these ideas. I would struggle to, to produce one of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's super cool. So I, I think that's, you know, a great summary of, of Severa, the work that you're doing, the products. for those who are. Uh, listening today, tell us a little bit more about what they can find you. I and mean, let's make sure we spell it as well, because I know that not everybody uh, speaks Hindi. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, severa is a Hindi word that means new beginning. And it was actually named by our very first employees in India, because this is their opportunity for a new beginning. So it's a really special name for us. But it is spelled S-A-V-H-E-R-A. And you can find us at severa.com, dot acom or follow us on social media. And our social media handle is at Severa Wellness. So at Severa, S A V H E R A Wellness.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Uh, learned Thank a lot you. today. And uh, yeah, wish you the best of luck.
1: Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Take care. Seeing your competitor outrank you on the first page of Google sucks, especially knowing that 92% of all traffic goes to results on the first page. Getting quality backlinks for your website is hard not with shortlist.io. We build highly relevant, contextual, and most importantly, clean backlinks for your business to help you crush the competition. Ready to start? Get shortlisted on search engines now and visit shortlist.io. That's S-H-O-R-T-L-I-S-T dot I-O.
0: Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step by step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.